Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. So last week, if you were around, we started a brand new series for the new year, looking at a little book in the middle of our Bibles called the Song of Songs, sometimes known as the Song of Solomon. And what we see in this book is eight chapters of romantic poetry. Uh, And if you've ever done a Bible in a year, you might have made it as far as the Song of Songs and then thought, Whoa, what's this doing in my Bible? It's interesting stuff. It's a bit different to anything else we see in the Bible. And for most of history, it's been understood as a book about Jesus and his people. And it shows us things about the love that he has for us and the love that he would invite us to have for him through this metaphor of this poetry. And last week I went into um, a, a few of the reasons why I think that's the right way to understand it. If, you, uh, if you're interested in that, that's all up on the podcast. Um, there's a guy called Julian Hardiman who's written a great book uh, about the Song of Songs uh, called, uh, he's called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And uh, he writes this in it, Jesus loves me with the passion of a man for a woman. And the Song of Songs illustrates this in extraordinary colours and scents and tastes. A music of words to set our souls on fire in response. That's what we're going for. We want our souls to be set on fire as we understand the love that he has for us. So last week we kicked it off and we looked at this like high-octane start to the book as, uh, as the woman. It's, it's basically a, a man and a woman singing songs and writing poetry to each other. And, and it starts with her uh, expressing what she wants, her desire for him, and she wants the kisses of his mouth. And we talked about the longing, the passion, the intensity in that relationship and what it looks like to have longing, intensity and passion in our relationship with God. Well, today we're going to see how she feels about herself. And we'll, we'll also see what he might have to say about this. The title I'm going for today is a, is a direct quote from one of the verses in here, which we'll read in a bit, um, where he says to her, you are beautiful, my love. They're the words of the lover to the beloved in the song. But these words are spoken to her, but she doesn't quite get it straight away. It's quite difficult for her to receive those words spoken over her. And that's not an uncommon thing. To hear words like that, actually there are many people, certainly in our day, it's a widespread thing, that people find those words sometimes difficult to accept, difficult to receive, difficult to recognise, okay, this might be true of me. Uh, On New Year's Day, I read an article on uh, a major news website written by uh, a journalist called Amelia Hill about a big study that had been done. Uh, And she, she said this, this was part of her report. Three out of four children, as young as 12, dislike their bodies and are embarrassed by the way they look. And that increases to eight in 10 when we go to the 18 to 21 age group. Nearly half of all children and young people aged between 12 and 21 who were questioned have said they've become withdrawn or started exercising excessively or stopped socialising completely or self-harmed because they're regularly bullied or trolled 
online about their physical appearance. Those numbers are scary, aren't they? There's an endemic thing in our culture for self-image, for poor self-image and the harmful effects that come with that. It brought to mind a 2019 study that I saw by a guy called John Rankin Wendell. That, um, he entitled it Selfie Harm. And, and what he did, again, he was um, doing a study with young people. And he got a group of young people and he took a photo of them. Uh, and then he gave them that photo. He gave them um, editing tools. And he said, what I want you to do is take this photo of yourself and make it internet ready. You can edit it however you want to make it so you'd be happy for this photo to go on the internet. I think we've got some examples of some of the way that people change their photos. You might see uh, people are making their eyes bigger, they're making their noses smaller, they're making their skin brighter, they're trying to mimic the, the appearance that they think that celebrities that they admire would have, which probably themselves have been equally edited and airbrushed into a certain way. Because they're saying the real me, the real way I look, I couldn't possibly see this go on the internet, but if I could somehow change myself to be different, then okay, maybe it can be publicly shared. <laughs> I remember vividly when I was younger, how I felt at that age, you know what, if I'd have been in that experiment, I would have done exactly the same thing. I would have made use of those tools. I would have created my own image the way I wanted it to be. We see something like that of the woman in the Song of Songs. I want to pick up where we left off last week. We read the first four verses of chapter one. And in verses five and six, we might get a feel for how she views herself. So uh, feel free to turn there if you've got a Bible. Um, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, from verse 5, and she says this. I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me, because I'm dark, because the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. I want to explain what's going on here. First thing to say, um, verse 5, we should not understand that. We shouldn't read that with any racial connotations to it. That's not what she's saying. That's not what's going on. That would be misreading it. She says she's beautiful. She knows she has a natural beauty. Yet a couple of times in these verses, she points out that she's dark, and that's her insecurity. That's the thing she said, don't gaze on me. Uh, she, she sees this as a reason to say, don't look at me because of this. Now, I'll tell you a bit about myself. I love summer. Like, it's my favourite season of year. I love it when the sun is shining really bright, and I love going out in the sun. I don't know if you remember last summer. We got some pretty hot days, didn't we? I remember one of the hottest days. It, it, it was a Tuesday. I had a bunch of study that I needed to do that day. That's what my work was. Uh, I had a book that I needed to read and make a ton of notes on. And I thought, bingo, I don't need a computer or anything like that. Book, notepad, big bottle of water, um, sun lotion. I'm going to work in the park today. So I went to the park, just laying out there with my book, with my notepad. And I had in my head that the park would be full, that everyone would have exactly the same idea as me, that it'd be hard to find space. Wasn't so. Uh, there were about three people in the park. Most other people thought, oh, it's a bit too hot today, and no, I'll stay inside. That's not me, because I'm a bit of an idiot with this kind of thing. I, I love being out in the hot sun. Now, my wife grew up in a different part of the world. She grew up in a country 
where it's actually hot quite a lot of the time, where they get plenty of sun. So whenever I'm acting like this, and oh yeah, it's sunny, let's go out in it. She always um, rinses me about it. Uh, and you might have heard the phrase, she loves to quote this one, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. I am Mr. Englishman from that saying. That is just me. Uh, I, I enjoy doing it. But uh, Emma has a very different attitude to the sun. In fact, we've even had moments where we've been on holiday. And what we've had to do is go on the beach and find the line on the beach where the shade starts and ends so we can sit next to each other, but I can be in the sun and she can be in the shade. We've actually done that. When you've been around the sun a lot, when you've grown up in a hot country, you treat it differently. And this song was written in Israel. It was Mediterranean. It was a hot part of the world. And the attitude to the sun in that part of the world would be, you only go out in the sun if you have to. You don't do it just for sunbathing, just for pleasure, just for enjoyment. It's weird. No, you, you stay out of the sun if you can avoid it. So it becomes a status thing. If you're rich, if you're powerful, you can stay in the shade and you can send other people to do the errands in the sun. If you're lower status, if you're poorer, you may have have to go and work in the sun and when you do that you'll get a suntan and the suntan becomes like a marker of a low status well that's what this beloved here has experienced in uh, in verse 6 she says my, my mother's sons were angry with me and they made me keeper of the vineyards I had to work outside so uh, because I've had to work outside uh, I've, I've got this tan I've not had time she says to keep my own vineyard talking about her appearance I've just not had opportunity to invest in making myself look the way I'd want to look so as she approaches her lover she's utterly full of insecurity when she's thinking about herself, what she'd say is, I'm tarnished, you can't look at me because what you'd see is something I'm not really very happy with. I wonder if anyone in here resonates with that feeling. I wonder when you consider yourself, maybe words like tarnished or uh, something like that, maybe you'd... Uh, echo that feeling and this is a spiritual book it's a book in scripture we're meant to see echoes of this when it comes to the spiritual life so I wonder perhaps even when it when you think about drawing near to Jesus when you think about what it might be to engage with him to be in his presence maybe there's a sense of insecurity there as well maybe those words she says do not gaze upon me because Maybe that's your sentence and you just finish it in a different way. You'd have your own version of that that you could say. Maybe what comes to mind are, are particular mistakes you've made in the past. Do not gaze upon me because of this thing that I did. Now, we, we know that we all sin. We, all, we know we've all made mistakes. But maybe you're thinking of something that in your head is just different. It's just bigger. It's just grand. You can't possibly look on me, God, because I'm the one who, who blew it in this spectacular way. Or maybe what comes to mind are, are the ongoing struggles that you've got. Do not gaze upon me, because there are these patterns. There are these habits that I can't seem to shake in life, and there's all sorts of shame that comes with that. So, Jesus, you couldn't possibly want to look on me and draw near to me. Maybe it's things that have happened to you. Do not gaze upon me because, and so you feel blemished, ruined, unwantable. Maybe it's the general chaos of life being a mess. You know you've not got your stuff together. So how could Jesus want to know you while you're in the mess that you're in? Maybe it's rejections that you've experienced at the hands of other people that others haven't wanted you. So how could God possibly 
won't you? Maybe you identify with those teens in the article at the start. It's the way you look, or maybe it's the way you sound, or maybe it's where you've landed in life. There are all sorts of things that we may say, do not gaze upon me because, which might affect how you think others would see you, which might affect how you think God would see you. Maybe it's just that you feel ordinary. You feel like you're nothing special. So why would Jesus want to bother with you? Surely there are people more worthy. Well, that's true of the bride here as well. If you just flick to chapter 2, this is how she starts chapter 2. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, you might hear that. I think, okay, that's nice. She's saying some nice stuff about herself. Yeah-ish. Uh, like, like the rose and the lily, they're pretty flowers. They're, they're not unattractive flowers, but they were absolutely everywhere. These were the most common flowers that you'd find in that part of the world. So she's not picking out something extraordinary or exceptional. She's picking out something as ordinary as it comes. She said, I'm just like all the others. Maybe it would be like comparing yourself uh, to, to being a common daisy or something like that. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you think, well, no, I'm not worthy of God's attention. You think of your friends. You think of certain people who you know, who they do all the holy stuff. They look like they're really going for it with God. So God would be interested in them. I'm just ordinary. I'm just normal. He wouldn't be interested in me. Or maybe it's certain leaders who you, you look at people who are leading things that you're involved with, who have opportunities that you don't have. Yeah, God would be interested in, in those people but not me. Or maybe it's Christian influencers. I'm not even going to get started on what I think about that as a concept. But maybe it's people you've seen online who you think, yeah, those people, yeah, they're sorted. God would be interested in them. How do you think the groom responds? How do you think as she's talking this way about herself, what, what would he say? Well, he responds in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says this, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among maidens. What he's saying is, you may think you're ordinary, but to me, you stand out. To me, you're special. To me, you make all the others pale into insignificance. Your beauty is such that I'm drawn to you. Have you ever done a thing, right, when, when, when you fancy someone and there's a photo of a group of people and they're one of them? Do you pay attention to everyone else on the photo or do your eyes go to the one? He's saying, you're the one, you're the lily among the brambles. And then in verse 3, she says the same about him. And she says, as an apple tree among the trees of my wood, uh, uh, among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among young men. She's saying, you're different, you stand out, you captivate me, I notice you. How does he really feel about her? Well, I'm going to read to you in a minute from chapter 4. And what we'll read is some poetry that he speaks on their wedding day. Now, um, hands up if you've been to a wedding recently, let's say last couple of years if you've been to a wedding right imagine the speech that the groom gives at the wedding what kind of things is he going to say what kind of things would you expect him to say Jason Roach uh, explains it this way and he's absolutely right a groom in his wedding speech does not pretend that his wife is just the same as every other woman that would be ludicrous instead he deliberately picks out those things that bring him joy and he celebrates them I mean, just imagine if he did. Just imagine you were at a wedding and the groom stood up to give his speech and was like, yeah, yeah, she's all right. She's, she's fine. She, she's okay. Um, beggars can't be choosers and all that. <laughs> like, it'd be crazy, wouldn't it? 
I wonder if sometimes when we think about Christ, our lover of our soul, whether he might speak of us in that way. But here's what he actually says, reading uh, from verse 1 of chapter 4. And this is what you call a wasp, which is a traditional form of Arabic poetry that describes the body bit by bit from the top to the bottom and back up again is what he does. And do, doing so through metaphor. So it's not trying to create a picture of what it actually looks like. It's a sense of how it all makes him feel. So let's read chapter 4. How beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved. Your lips are like a crimson thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in courses. On it hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will hasten to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You're altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amarna, from the peak of Senir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You've ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? You might find it a bit weird if someone said that to you. It's, it's an ancient form of poetry. We don't quite do it the same way today. But do you get the intensity of feeling in there? Do you, do you see how he feels about her. Some of the highlights, verse 1, how beautiful you are, my love, how very beautiful. Verse 7, you're altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. Verse 9, you've ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You've ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes. Remember, this is a spiritual book and we read it spiritually. Those words, how beautiful you are, there is no flaw in you. You have ravished my heart. We read those as words from Christ to the church. We read those as words from Christ to you and to me. Do you hear those words from Jesus speaking over you? How beautiful you are. There is no flaw in you. You have ravished my heart. I think often... We don't understand this. And I, when I say we, I'm talking people who've been a Christian for a long, long time can struggle with this. I think we know that God loves us. I think we, we're able to say that. And I think a lot of the time it's a bit conceptual. We, we think about it. We, we kind of understand some of the mechanics. Well, oh, yeah, I, I, I know God loves me. But we can think of it as though it's like a kind of charity, a bit of a compromise on his part. Like he doesn't really want to, but somehow there are some mechanisms that mean he's kind of got to be okay with it. And so he goes along with it. I don't know if you've ever uh, felt that way. Maybe you wouldn't put it into words that way, but we can treat it like it's that. Maybe we don't always see him as the besotted groom, the one who says, my heart is ravished 
by your beauty. He doesn't love you because he has to. He loves you because he loves you, because he adores you, because he sees beauty in you. He's drawn to you. He wants you. It's not compulsory for him. He rejoices in you. Do you hear those words from him? In Zephaniah, it speaks of God rejoicing over you with gladness, exulting over you with loud singing. This can be a hard thing to grasp, can't it? But when you do, it melts the heart. It does something to you. Now, I bet, I'm just going to kind of play the argument. I bet there's a few people in the room who would just say, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. This all just sounds a bit self-esteemy. This is like, I, I, I need the theology to get this, otherwise I'm not going along with it. Sounds a bit like, yeah, you go you, you're awesome kind of vibes. By the way, l- let me just say this. When, when the whole thing of esteem is built on the foundation of the love of Christ, it's no bad thing at all, okay? We don't want to make people feel bad about themselves. That's not what we're about. And the love of Christ does show us something amazing about ourselves. But the point remains, it's not like the things we highlighted earlier, the the sins and the struggles and the things that we've done that might have blemished us. It's not like those things are entirely false. We've all sinned and we know that sin does mar the beauty of the image of God in us. And we, we know from scripture that that stuff's not trivial or small or insignificant. We're told in the New Testament, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceived and the truth is not in us. All of that's true. And yet here the bridegroom can say, there is no flaw in you. And that's the beauty of the gospel. If you don't understand this, it's the gospel we need to revisit so you can grasp how it all works. Charlie Cleverly helps us. He says, there are four reasons for this loving, positive assessment. First, the finished work of Christ. Second, The gift of the Holy Spirit, who moves our heart to be born from above and to become children of God. We cannot overestimate how beautiful this is to God. Third, the nature of God's personality, which is the hesed, covenant love of God for his people. And fourth, our destiny as his future bride. Let me just talk about each of those four briefly so we understand what he's saying. He points out the finished work of Christ. It's been called the great exchange because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's like everything that would mar your beauty, every sin, every blemish, every tarnish on you, he takes them on himself and he went to the cross with them. And he died on the cross and he dealt with them. He took the punishment that was due to us and he gives us his perfect, holy, blameless, blemishless righteousness before God. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how he can say there is no flaw in you. What flaw could there possibly be when he's taken everything and it's been nailed to the cross with him? Secondly then, the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the work that God does on the inside of us. God comes to dwell in us, he transforms us, he beautifies us, he changes us, he makes us new. Now this isn't the basis of why we're accepted before God, but it's what he does once we're accepted. 
Jesus uses the metaphor of a tree. Uh, and the, the new tree produces a new fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. And when the Holy Spirit comes and changes you from the inside out, you'll start to produce a different kind of fruit, a fruit that is beautiful in God's eyes. It says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we see these things increasingly in our lives and in the lives of others, this is a beauty that thrills God's heart. The third one was the nature of God's personality. And he talked about hesed love. And hesed's a Hebrew word. We don't really have a good English equivalent. Think committed, covenant, tender love. An analogy would be the kind of love that speaks a wedding vow. Think about the words in the vow, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. No matter what, I'm in because I love you, because I care about you, because I'm giving myself to you and for you. This is a love that melts away all those insecurities. When you've got this kind of love, you don't negotiate point by point on the beauty of your spouse. You don't get in a conversation with someone, say, well, you've got a, a good point. Yeah, she's beautiful in this way, but this bit isn't so good. You don't do that. You're all in. You're committed. Your heart is for her. She's altogether beautiful. You heard the phrase blinded by love. It's not always a bad thing, you know. Sometimes it's a very, very good thing as you see your beloved altogether beautiful. It means it doesn't hang on whether we have it all together, whether we meet a certain standard that, that ourselves or others might put on us. Because it's based on his character and his committed love. I see you as beautiful, altogether beautiful, my love. And then finally, he points out our destiny as the bride of Christ. Right at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is talking about the church. It's talking about us. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's how the story ends. We are the bride of Christ. It says, prepared for her husband. Now, we know how weddings go, don't we? We know uh, that the bride prepares herself. She beautifies herself ready for that day. The, the months and months of shopping for the perfect dress uh, and then buying that dress and then uh, the months and months of uh, making sure that everything is sorted, the right person to do the hair in just the right way, the right makeup artist to make sure everything about her is how she presents herself on that day prepared for her husband. And then that moment as she walks in, everyone looks around and there's a gasp, like, wow, from the congregation as you see the beauty of the bride. And then you look, and you, you look in the eyes of the groom as he's looking at her and his face is just melting. All of that is a picture that points to this day when the bride of Christ, the church, comes down from heaven and he receives it. It all points to this. So the groom and the groom in the song and the groom in Revelation is Christ, can say to you, to me, to, to all of us, you are beautiful, my love. You have ravished my heart. I wonder, I wonder if you can hear those words. I wonder if in your soul and in your spirit, you can hear the words of Christ spoken to you. You are beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You have ravished my heart. I want to quote Charles Spurgeon, 
who was a 19th century guy who did some teaching on the Song of Songs. And he's just imagining what Christ is saying to his bride in the song. Just hear these words. This, and here it is, Jesus saying this to you. You have praised me. I will praise you. You think much of me. I think quite as much of you. You use great expressions for me. I will use just the same for you. You say, my love is better than wine, so is yours to me. You say, my word is sweeter than honey to your lips, so is yours to mine. All that you can say of me, I say it to you. I see myself in your eyes. I can see my own beauty in you. And whatever belongs to me belongs to you. Therefore, oh my love, I will sing back the song. You've sung it to your beloved, and I will sing it to my beloved. You've sung it to your husband, I will sing it to my sister, my spouse. Isn't that amazing? That idea of Christ singing the song back to us as he says, you are beautiful, my love.